Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. We're back again for another week of worship and uh, the sermon. I brought my handy-dandy mask. It has the charcoal filter on the inside, in case I need that. I also have my hand sanitizer, so I'm always on the ready these days to go out and remain safe for myself and safe for others. But I realize that this Purell is, um, this is valuable stuff now. You can't find it. There's at least an ounce in this bottle. So I'll probably put that on eBay sometime today. So if you want my ounce of Purell, maybe I can get 50 bucks for it. Okay, let's get serious and get to the message if we can. Mark chapter 8. We're in Mark 8, if you'd open your Bibles to Mark 8. Now, this is a, 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 the week, we're the week before Easter, so it would be called uh, Palm Sunday. And I want to remind you guys that this coming Thursday is Maundy Thursday. Monday means mandate. The mandate is love one another. So I want to remind you that we're going to have communion together this Thursday. Now, how you might say, how can we do that since we're all in our own homes? Well, communion was always in a home in the old days. Uh, so why don't you do this? If you have the elements ready in your home, in other words, the bread and the wine or the bread and the grape juice, whichever you have, and everyone has one, um, then when Monday Thursday comes, when I'm talking to you right here on this beautiful screen, then um, I'll take communion and you'll take communion and, and I'll lead you through it and we'll take it together. So that's uh, your reminder. Be ready this coming Monday Thursday for communion. All right. Let's jump, I, that should have given you time to open your Bible to Mark's, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 33. Here we go, I'm going to read uh, three verses, then stop for a moment, ready? And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And, and others one of the prophets. Well, he's getting all kinds of answers, isn't he? In verse 29, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. The Christ. You are the... Now, Christ is, is, a, is a Greek transliteration of the word anointed one or Messiah, Mashiach. You are the Messiah of the Jews. Jesus asked them, this question, not in front of the crowds. He doesn't talk about his identity here in front of the crowds, but in private. And, and it's, he's not, obviously he's not talking about his name, right? He's not saying, who do they say I am? Well, they say, you're Bill or you're Timmy. No, he's not. They know his name is Jesus. They mean his identity. Who do people say I am? Who what, do the, what does the crowd think of me? What are they saying about me on Facebook and whatnot? And so they, they relate back the rumors. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, of course, John the Baptist was, was dead. His head had been lopped off, but he had been so famous and such a great preacher, people thought he's going to do great things, and some thought that his spirit somehow went into Jesus after he died. Um, so maybe you're John the Baptist. And others said, no, you're, he, he's Elijah. Now, Elijah, the Jews believed, was the prophet from the Old Testament who could do miracles, by the way. Not most prophets could do uh, healing miracles and such, but Elijah could. And 
Jesus did. So I thought, well, maybe he's Elijah. Well, if he's Elijah, that's pretty exciting because Elijah comes before the Messiah. Another said, no, you're one of the prophets. So that could have been an old prophet, some other prophet, Isaiah, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, or maybe even a new prophet. And then Jesus says, now what about you guys? <laughs> so so he's, he's looking for a distinction. You, you know that's what they say. I want to know what you say. I want to know if you've learned more than the crowds. Do you know me better? You're the 12 apostles that I have chosen to be closest to me. Do you, do you, is your opinion the same as the, as the crowds? Do you have your own theories? And Peter answered for the group. And he gave the correct answer. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are Messiah. Notice that Jesus Jesus is arranging it so his followers understand his identity at this point in his ministry. He's served with them a long time, <clears throat> several years, and now he wants to make sure they know his identity, not just his name. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he, he doesn't seem as concerned that the crowds know his identity, but he wants the 12 to know his identity. Why? Well, Jesus' identity determines his mission, doesn't it? Think about it. If the crowds are right and Jesus is John the Baptist, then that should identify his ministry. What should he be doing? He should be preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand and, and the Messiah is coming and he should be out baptizing. That's what John the Baptist do, does because that's in his name, <laughs> right? John, he's not John the cook. It's not, it's not John the auto mechanic, it's John the Baptist. So Jesus should be out there baptizing, if that's what he is. If he's Elijah, then he should be, if he's a prophet of any kind, what do prophets do? Prophets take the message of God and give it to you. And that's it. That's their job. That's their whole job. So if he is one of the prophets, or Elijah, if he's Elijah, he comes before Messiah, that's exciting. So he, And if he's just one of the other lesser or one of the prophets who doesn't come before Messiah, he just has to speak some words. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said. Then he's no better than the fake prophet Muhammad who brings some words, right? Or Joseph Smith, the fake prophet of the Mormons who brings some words. Um, or even a legitimate prophet of the Jews like, like Zephaniah or Zechariah or Daniel. He, he may be an impressive man, but all he's got to do is Speak some words. God said this, and then he's done. His identity determines his mission. Right? The answer to this question matters because his identity determines his mission. And so if the people consider him to be these certain things, they're going to have certain expectations on him. Likewise, if his apostles think he has a certain identity, they're going to have certain expectations on him. If he is the Savior or the Messiah, then what do they expect him to do? Save Israel, of course. So his identity determines his mission. And likewise, each individual's answer to the question, who am I, when Jesus asks it, who is Jesus, that determines their response to him, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If he's just... So some people today will say, Jesus is not the Son of God, but he is a very good teacher and a wise man and influential in the world. Well, if he is not the Son of God, but simply a wise teacher, that puts him in league with Confucius, right? Or, 
or some other wise person that you can listen to what they have to say, but it's not binding on you. You can consider what he says. If he is a charlatan, if you consider him a charlatan, then he's someone to be ignored. His identity determines your response to him. If he's the Son of God, how should you respond? It, it, it changes. Now, Jesus was, in his time, a local hero, famous in Galilee, famous even down in the big town, Jerusalem. But who is he really? That is the question of our text. <laughs> who do the crowd say I am? This, this, this. Okay, but who am I really? And he wants the disciples to get this right. Right? They needed to know his identity. Why do you think at this point in his ministry, not at the beginning when he first starts, but at this point does he want this to be a settled matter with his apostles? I mean, he's, he's revealing himself, if you will, all the way through. He's not hiding. But he's not plainly coming out and saying, I am Messiah. <laughs> now he is, and he wants his apostles to know it. Why do you think it's important now? Well, as you go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that this is the point. We're calling this section of Mark the unstoppable Son of God. Why? Because you'll see in, in all these chapters we have, every barrier that comes in his name, he overcomes, right? But the last section, when we get to that, he's going to go to the cross. And, and it's really this, this chapter, this text, is the point where his face turns towards death, if you will, where he's going to turn his face towards the cross. Now, nobody knows he's doing this. The Pharisees don't know he's doing this. His friends don't know he's doing this. His family doesn't know he's doing this. The crowds don't know it. His followers don't know it. Nobody knows it, but he knows it. He knows I've got to go to a cross and die. And so at this point, it's important for him to make sure his apostles know his identity as Messiah, okay? So, and then verse so, so as he turns towards the cross, he's making his identity known. Verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is an interesting thing. He, he, he is telling them, okay, you are correct. I am Messiah. You are correct. I am the Christ. I am the Savior. I am the one Elijah said was to come. I am the one that John the Baptist said is Messiah. I am, I'm him. Okay, here I am on the earth. Now, here's what I want you to do. Tell no one. Now, what do they do for a living? What is it these guys do for a living? For a living, they tell other people what Jesus tells them. That's their job. He sends them out. Go tell them the things I taught you. Teach them my words. But this one great truth, the greatest of truth for Jews, because they're waiting impatiently for a Messiah, don't tell them. Don't tell them. Keep it to yourself. Why? Why not tell the crowds? Okay, finally we verified it in a private meeting. <laughs> We're holding a news conference. And um, the, uh, the Messiah task force is here. And, uh, <laughs> so Peter, the vice, the vice Messiah, or second in command, he's going to come up and go, I have an announcement. He's the Messiah. You know, why not tell the world? We're not told why Jesus doesn't, but I think we can make a guess at what would happen if they did start announcing, if they did start saying, this is the Messiah. 
you can guess at the expectations of their audience, right? If, if the 12 started telling everyone he's the Messiah, well, the, the Pharisees and priests are going to say, wait a minute, you're telling us we have to follow him. The crowd's going to say, wait a minute, you mean we, it's time for us to, to get behind him in his kingdom, in his army, really. The zealots are going to say, it's time to overthrow. Look, the Jews are waiting impatiently for a Messiah. <laughs> impatiently, not patiently. They are not, they have a book that tells of their glory days and of their great and faithful King David. And the son of David, grandson, is the Messiah. And he's going to come and he's going to set everything right. And he's going to raise up Israel above all the nations. It, when Messiah comes, Israel is restored to glory, but even greater glory than she's ever had because the prophets have told them that. The prophets have, have, have told them that the nations will, will, will be in subjection to Israel and, and the Lord will rule as king on the earth. The Messiah will be the king of all the earth. So what would their expectations be? The people knew, for example... Look in Micah 4. This is a, a very well-known to the Jews prophecy of the very end of all things when Messiah comes. And uh, it says this. This is what they'd expect. Let me read this to you. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord refers to where the temple is. The temple is in Jerusalem. There's only one temple, and it's the only place God can be properly worshipped in the Jewish mindset, the temple. So that'd be the house of the Lord. So the mountain, so if you ever were a, 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 a tourist and you went to Israel, um, obviously the temple mount, uh, where the temple used to be, that's the most important place to visit, the temple. And, and what this says, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now does that mean it'll be the, the, the landscape will change, maybe, maybe not, but it, this is probably figurative language. It's the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. The peoples or nations here will flow to it. Many nations shall come and they'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So uh, the Jews expect all the peoples w- to give up their gods, no matter where they are, and come flooding into Jerusalem as a holy pilgrimage and say, let's go to the mountain of the only God right? This is their expectation. Um, To the house of the God of Jacob. That's the Jews' God, right? That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. All of a sudden, all the the other religions are going to say, we want to go to the house of Israel so their God can teach us how to behave correctly. We can give up our Buddhism and our... our, um, Hinduism or our Islam, there was no Islam at, at, at that time, of course, but nevertheless, we'll give up all our false religions and follow the Jews, what the Israel's, Israel's God says. He says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's this picture of the, you take the words of the prophets, the words of the, what they would call the Bible, the Old Testament, they would envision it going out to the whole world. Everyone saying, this is the scripture, we'll throw away our other ones. This is the word. And it says, For out of Zion shall go the law, the, the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. 
uh, every weapon you use for war will now be changed into an instrument for farming. The, the, it's, a, it's a metaphorical way of saying we won't need um, guns to kill one another. We won't need tanks. We won't need spears and swords because no one is going to be at war when Messiah comes. The world will be at peace. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Notice, by the way, this is a parenthetical idea. In other words, it's not the heart of what I want to talk about. But I want you to notice that private property is established as the rule for the the Messiah's kingdom. Those people who think socialism or communism are somehow God's way, where he divides everything equally, do not correctly read the Bible. Even when speaking of the millennial kingdom... Um, or the kingdom of the Messiah, whichever you prefer. He says, they shall, every man under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. So what he's saying is you can own your own place that provides your food, and you don't have to worry about thieves or governments taking it from you, for the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. So what we see here is this beautiful picture of Messiah coming, raising up the truth of God to go out to all the world, and the world lives at peace because Messiah is ruling the world. Now, (laughs) this is in the minds of the crowds, of the Jews. This is what happens when Messiah comes. What happens to evildoers? There are other prophecies that say they will be judged. They will be be cast out. They will be slain, right? So only the righteous, those who love God, will be there. So if you tell them this is Messiah, that's what they're going to expect, isn't it? That's what they're going to want to see. But their expectations would be wrong. Their expectation, is Micah not true? Isn't that going to happen? Oh, that will happen when Messiah comes. But not till he comes again. But they didn't know that. Let, let me show you as we go back to our text. Look at verse 31. Look, now this is, he's not, this is Jesus in verse 31. Verse 31, he's not teaching the crowds. He's teaching his own, the twelve. And this is what it says, he began to teach them, which means he didn't just say this in one sentence. From this point on, he begins explaining things to them about what must happen. And this is what must happen. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. You see, the disciples, what were the disciples' expectation of Messiah? Well, they're Jews. It's the same as everybody else's. And he says, now I'm going to have to shift your thinking. This is a private lesson for you 12. The crowds don't know this, but Messiah doesn't automatically take over the world. I need to teach you something. He must first suffer. Now, you may be wondering, was this a brand new teaching? Well, actually, it's not a brand new teaching, as I will show you in a minute. This, when, when it says he began to teach them, he began to teach them from the Bible that Messiah had to suffer. But before we get to that, and we, that's where we want to go uh, finally, that's our goal, we, we have to deal with how Peter reacted. So let's do with that and then we'll come back. Um, verse 32. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began 
to rebuke him. Peter says, <laughs> okay, you're Messiah. We're all excited about that. And then Jesus says, now I need to start teaching you a new thing. That I need to correct your expectations. Your expectation is I'm going to come in and rule, but that is an incorrect expectation. What Messiah is going to do is going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the leaders, beaten up, suffer, and then die and raise on the third day. And Peter's hearing this going, this is not right. This is not right. <laughs> I may be a fisherman, but I know what, we, what the Bible says, and he's not right. So instead of embarrassing Jesus by rebuking, you don't want to rebuke, very wise, right? Very wise. Children, learn this about your parents. If you could be like Peter here, if you want to tell your mom that maybe she's mistaken, um, when she's with all her friends, don't go, wrong mom! (laughs) That normally, (laughs) mom normally doesn't go for that, right? You might pull her aside and go, Mom, can I ask you about a little something you said? And so Jesus is being diplomatic like that. He's like, I'm not going to correct Jesus in front of all the guys, but Jesus, can we talk, you know, just you and me? I, you seem to, to, to give me a lot of responsibility, and maybe it's my place to tell you this. Jesus, come on over here. We, we just heard you're Messiah. That's awesome. Um, that's really cool. But um, then you said you'd have to suffer, right? Now, kings who suffer and then die, it's really hard to run a kingdom if you're dead. Um, um, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're not going to die. That's not what Messiahs do. So he's talking to him privately, maybe not that loud. And he says this to Jesus. How is Jesus going to react? Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Peter rebuked him, and he rebuked Peter. He got out rebuked. <laughs> he got out rebuked. Don't rebuke Jesus. Never get into a rebuking fight with Jesus. You will lose. Your arms are too short to box with God, as they say. So, uh, but notice what Jesus does physically. In verse 33, it says, but turning and seeing his disciples. So Peter's got him off to the side, and Jesus goes, come here, Pete. I want everyone to hear this. You know, Peter was like, I don't want to rebuke you in front of everybody. And and Jesus is like, well, I'm going to rebuke you in front of everybody. (laughs) And then he rebuked Peter, and he said this, very strong rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Now, he knows Peter is not Satan, obviously. Um, He's calling him Satan. Why? Because he's Satan's spokesman in the moment. Now, don't think that's harsh. Have you ever been Satan's spokesman? I know I have. (laughs) I know there's times I've urged people to do the wrong thing. Sometimes, like Peter, it's just because I misunderstood Sometimes it was worse, more intentional. But, I, you know, no, you should go and fight him. You should go and punch that guy. You know, now I'm speaking for Satan. You should lie to him. Now I'm speaking for Satan. Peter is speaking for Satan. He doesn't think what he's saying is bad. He thinks it's good. But he's wrong. And here's why. He, get, he tells him why he's speaking for Satan. He says, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of God. Of man. If you want if you're an underliner in your Bible, that's the line. You are not setting your mind on things of God. Your brain is on sinful the way humans think in the world. There's something the Germans like the word Zeitgeist, right? Which is means the the the, the way of the world, the thinking of the world, right? That there is what we can call it conventional wisdom. There's the way the world thinks. 
And, 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 and it's not the way God thinks. <laughs> the spirit of the world. He says, you're thinking like man. You're not thinking on the things of God. Your mind is set on the wrong goals. What, 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 does, that, what does that mean? Well, what, what, is, what is the things of man when it comes to Messiah? This isn't as hard to figure out as you might think. Think of every, think of November, the, was it the first Tuesday of November when we all go to vote? You know, what are you thinking of? I'm going to get a powerful leader in there who will do the political things I need done and we will bring what I think is a better government and a better life onto the earth. I'm not saying those thoughts don't matter. I'm saying when you look at those things, do you think with, them, with the things of man in your mind or things of God? The, Peter was thinking conquest, of course. Man thinks of conquest. Man thinks of victory. Man thinks of uh, setting the world right by force. By force if need be. <laughs> right? You say, no, I don't want to do it by force. You do if the other side won't give in. And this is the history of mankind. I'm not talking, I'm not trying to insult you personally. <laughs> this is the history of our people, our race. If the other side won't give in, we'll make them give in. We'll force them. We'll force them financially. We'll force them emotionally. We'll force them by law. We'll force them every way we can. And if that doesn't work, we'll just stab them with a sword. <laughs> That's what people do. The Romans are oppressing the Jews. Messiah is here. What we're going to do, Jesus, is we're going to knock the Romans off their perch. We're going to straighten up everyone in Israel who's too stupid to see your Messiah. We're going to kill the wicked, take over. You're going to set up this really cool country. Everything's going to be perfect. And there'll be peace on earth, because that's what I want, peace on earth. And then we can live a good life, enjoying the sunshine in the morning, the sunset at night, and ice cream all day long. It's going to be a perfect world. This is how man thinks. But you know what, man, because we're fallen and sinful, we are sinful, get that? You know what man ignores? Two things. One Mankind can never be satisfied with the things of earth. Now, most of you listening are Christians, but you may be an atheist out there. And you, you, you might have heard that some guy named Augustine said man has a God-shaped hole and he won't be satisfied until God fills it. Well, uh, that's the easiest thing to prove in the world. The most dissatisfied creature on God's green earth is Man. Dogs and cats and slugs and worms and beetles and, and dragonflies and fish and dolphins, they don't need therapists, although some people take their dogs to therapists, but they don't need them because they don't have existential crises. My dog, if I don't feed my dog for a day, I forget. <laughs> some of you thinking, have you ever forgotten? Let's not go there, okay? He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, life is not worth living. When he sees me again, he, he looks at me as happy as he is. His tail is wagging. Great to see you. He doesn't say, hey, you know, um, I can't wait for tomorrow because you forgot this morning. He doesn't say anything like that. He's not having a crisis. 
He never bites his claws. What's going to happen tomorrow? Is he going to feed me? And then when I do feed him a ton, maybe sometimes, last week, no kidding, I gave him a beef heart. I had a beef heart that I never got around to cooking. Some of you said, why would you cook it? Okay, forget it. So I thawed it out and I gave it to him. He was the happiest dog in the world. But he's just as happy with a beef heart as without a beef heart. But he was happy eating the beef heart. He's, he, he's not coming back saying, well, where's my beef heart today? Humans, I can give them anything and they want more. Remember that famous Rockefeller way back during the Depression who gave out the dimes to people and, and he was the richest man in the world at that time and was asked, how much do you need to be satisfied? And he said, just a little more. And that is us. Mankind will not, look at America. We have everything. If you go live in other countries, look at other countries, most of them don't have what we have physically and freedom-wise. We got it all, baby. Would you say Americans are satisfied? I'd say Americans are whiny crybabies. Now, not you, of course, but all those other people you know. Nothing's ever good enough. Men cannot be satisfied. The second thing man ignores when he thinks of conquest is that sin will destroy him. So you set up a perfect world, Peter. Guess what? You're still a sinner. God's still holy. And you're going to die. The perfect world is here, but you're getting old. You can't enjoy it because you're dying. And your stomach can't eat the same kind of foods. And you get acid and your heartbeat isn't right. And you can't walk as far. And you got arthritis. And the next thing you know, your mind's starting to fade because your arteries are getting hard. And you croak. (laughs) Did you like this great world you have? Well, now you're dead. And not only are you dead, the Bible says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. So the very next thing you do is you stand before a holy God who looks at your deeds and they are, your wicked deeds are many. doesn't matter what you did good because your wicked deeds are going to be judged and you're going to be thrown into hell. So that's where Peter's view of Messiah ends. That's where Peter's view ends with with a world where humans go to hell, lost in sin. And Jesus says, you're not thinking with the mind of God. You're thinking with the mind of Satan. Now, Jesus' mind is on the things of God. Things of God. Let's consider that a minute. Won't be long after this, a matter of weeks, he's going to stand before the Roman governor, whose name is Pilate, and Pilate is going to be the one who decides whether to kill him or not. And uh, the Roman, there's this little snippet of the conversation in John I want to share with you from John 18. It says, Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? He says, you're not binding over me, are you? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. You must have done something wrong. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. What does he mean? He is not seeking a kingdom in the fashion of fallen man. Right? Genghis Khan sucked. (laughs) Past and to seek. That was purely accidental, but kind of funny. (laughs) Genghis Khan seeked. He went looking for, let's say it that way, a kingdom. And he found one. He was one of the most successful 
uh, men in the history of the world. As far as kingdoms go, Napoleon uh, went looking for a kingdom, and for a while he, he had it going on. Hitler went looking for a kingdom, and he, he took over most of Europe for a little while. The USSR, Stalin went looking for a kingdom, and he had a lot. You know, obviously the Romans went looking for a kingdom, and they had one. Alexander the Great had a kingdom, and, 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 and what, what, what Peter expected Jesus to do was do the same thing as them, but more complete. Take over the whole world, but it would have been after the fashion of fallen man. And what would that have gotten him? Let's say Jesus in the first century didn't go to the cross, but said, okay, I'm going to set up the Messiahship now and took over the whole world and ended war. What would have happened? He would have been the Lord presiding over generation after generation of sinful human beings being born, growing old, dying, and going to hell. That's it. Not much of a kingdom when you think about it. Not much of a kingdom for a God. No, Jesus' concern was a better kingdom. Let's think about the mind of God. Jesus is fighting for a different kingdom. What is the plan for God's kingdom? How is it different? Well, God's plan is not to dominate the world by war. It's to redeem a sinful people and make them holy. To take people from every nation who are sinners on their way to judgment and fix that problem. Make them unsinners. <laughs> Not by making them behave, well, that will be the end result, but by fixing their past, by taking away their sinful deeds and their inner desire. By killing that thing inside them that makes them sin. In other words, he wants to make them holy. He wants to make them eternal, holy citizens worthy of a kingdom where no one dies and no one does evil. He wants to tra- and he doesn't want to start with new people. I'm going to make all new people that don't sin. Forget Adam's race. We'll make a new man and have a new... No, no. No, no, no. He, he says, I'll take Adam's race, human beings... Fallen though they are, and I'm going to fix them. Well, no. well you might say, well, how does, how does a Messiah fix a sinful people? Well, the answer is he transforms them. Like a shapeshifter, right? <laughs> like like a, a, a metamorphosis. But he transforms them not simply physically, but spiritually, let's say morally, he takes away their sin and magically transforms them into holy. Let me show you this, not from the teachings of Jesus on, but from before that, this has always been the plan. Let me show you what Messiah said he's going to do, or God said he's going to do through Messiah in Ezekiel, verse 36. Way back in the Old Testament, it says this, watch. For I, this is God's plan, Okay. <laughs> I know, I was about to read it and I stopped, but I'm so excited about it. Uh, Here's what I want you to see. Peter's plan was, you're not going to die. You're a Messiah. You're going to take over the world. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I have my mind on things of God. Now, Peter had God's plan right here in Ezekiel. He just missed it. But here it is. Watch this. He says, for I take you, I'll take you from the nations. Take people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And I'll gather you from all the lands. And I'll bring you into your own land. There's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new Israel, a new world. God's going to actually remake the whole world. And I'm going to give it to you. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Now, he's not talking about giving them a bath. This is spiritual uh, language for I'm going to cleanse your soul. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll get rid of your false gods. But then you say, well, okay, he stops them from worshiping false gods and how to behave. But what about the fact that inside of each of them, they're fallen and they want to sin? Watch this. Watch this. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart. Now, he doesn't mean the thump, 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 thump thinging inside us, right? That's just an organ. It's a fleshly muscle mass. Um, and if <laughs> and I gave one from a cow to my dog, right? It's just a... <laughs> no, he means, when it says heart, he means your soul, your you. Whatever it is that is you, I'm going to give you a new one. Same person, but new you, a new heart. And then he's more specific here. I'll put a new spirit in you, right? You're, I will remove the heart of stone. Now, the heart, you don't, it's not a stone. I'm removing the sinful nature that you received by birth because you're a son or daughter of Adam and Eve. I'm going to remove that, and I'm going to put a new one in you. And he calls that, I'll give you a heart of flesh. So now you have a real heart. And then he says this. I will put my spirit in you. Once I cleanse you, I'm going to put my spirit in you. Once I change you, once you're metamorphosized, I'm going to come and join you. Right? This is the Old Testament. Jesus is going to fulfill this. Read the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, and you'll see that this was always the plan. I'm going to cleanse you, and he's going to do that at the cross, and then I'm going to put my spirit in you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to observe all my ordinances. They're not holy because they walk in his statutes. They walk in his statutes because they're holy. Because he remakes them. He, he gather, so God gathers his, his plan is gather the people from the nations. Do some heart surgery. Heart transplant. And, get, and, then, put, and then live with them inside them. Isn't this glorious? Okay, now for our map. Let's write this down. Hopefully you have it down in your head. <laughs> The plan of Jesus is not to take over this sinful world as it is and rule evil man. His plan is to remake the world by remaking the people. He makes the the unrighteous people righteous. He makes the sinners holy. This, my friends, is the mind of God. What's Peter's mind on? Fallen man. He's thinking like men think. He's thinking like Alexander the Great. He's thinking like Saddam Hussein. He's thinking like, like the guy who runs North Korea. I'm going to take over. <laughs> he, he sees local and national politics as what's most important for Jesus to fix. He sees Jesus ruling sinners. But Jesus' mind is on God, and God's plan is different. He desires to make sinful people holy. If my kingdom were of this world, well, we'd be out there fighting, and by the way, we'd be winning because I'm God. But I have another kingdom planned. Now, I want to deal with the mechanics, and then we'll be finishing up. How exactly can a Messiah make sinners holy? To quote one of our presidents, does he have a magic wand? Is he going to use a magic wand? (laughs) No, he's not going to use a magic wand. How can a Messiah make a sinner holy? The answer was always in the prophets of the Old Testament. 
In other words, Peter had the answer right in front of him in the Bible he grew up reading, but he didn't see it. Matter of fact, all the Jews had the answer right in front of them. The answer was hidden in plain sight. Messiah had to suffer. Let me show it to you from the Old Testament. This is Isaiah 53. Ready? Follow me. This is speaking of the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, and we esteemed him not. There it was. No doubt Jesus showed them this because they would later show us the same text when they got to the New Testament. In other words, Jesus, when he, he began to describe how Messiah must suffer, he would show them text like this. He says, it says right there, I was despised, I was rejected. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne their griefs. Who? Messiah. You expect Messiah to just take over the world, but you missed that Messiah had to bear your griefs. He had to carry your sorrows. You esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You thought he was just beaten up. He was actually doing something. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced through his hands, his feet, and his side. Why? For, for our sins. It's right there. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So, okay, I deserved punishment, judgment when I die. Instead of that, the holy, innocent Jesus, who's the only man who never sinned, was punished. But look, what, what does the text say? It says, the chastisement brought us peace. He, he, by suffering... For my sins and your sins and the sins of the world, the sins of his new kingdom, people, he brought peace between me and God. So if I die and I go and stand before God and I say I'm ready for the judgment, he says there's no evil deeds against you. What do you mean? I, I did a lot of evil deeds more than I can remember and you're holy. Now I say how holy you are. I see I did worse than I thought I did. Yeah, you did. But the Messiah was punished for all these and they're gone. Wow. That's what he's saying. And with his wounds we are healed. Unless anybody think, well, wait a minute. I'm good enough to be saved. No, no, no. It says all we like sheep have gone astray. No one's good enough. Not even the Pope. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. This is... The gospel of Jesus Christ written seven centuries before Jesus was born of Mary. And it says the Messiah had to suffer. So um, who do those people say I am? They say you're this, this, and this. Who do you say I am? Well, we say you're the Messiah. Okay, I need to start teaching you something about the Messiah that you don't know. What? He has to suffer. They're like, wait a minute. No, he doesn't. And he says, yes, he does. It's in the scriptures. How had Israel... As a nation, not seen this. It's hidden in plain sight. Peter is wrong. Payment must be made for sins. I want to show you in the New Testament just one verse on this from Hebrews 2.9. Look what it says. This is to Christians, right? It says, but we do see him. I'm not with our eyes, but with eyes of faith. 
we do see him who is made a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. Watch this. What's he tell us about Jesus? Because of the suffering of death, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Well, if you die, you can't be crowned. Who wants to see a crown on a dead, rotting corpse? But he raised again on the third day, didn't he? So he died, raised again, exalted to the right hand of God. He has glory and honor. Why? Why? Why did Jesus go through the trouble of dying? Why was Jesus pierced? Look what it says. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Right? And and we're not talking about just physical death, because I'm going to shed this mortal coil one day if he doesn't come back first. But spiritual death, I will never taste. It'll be from life to life. The Spirit springs forth into greater life. No death for me. Why? Because he tasted it for me. In other words, he substituted himself for me. And not just me. Obviously, I'm not that big of a deal. But all of us. So, Peter's like, Jesus, listen. Quit talking about dying. And Jesus says, You are the voice of Satan right now, son. The whole reason I came, you're telling me to undo. It's a very teachable moment. Peter's plan was earthly and satanic. For our map, let's capture this idea. Jesus knew that without death for sins, the kingdom he would set up on earth was doomed by sinful mankind. The plan of God was to make a way to transform sinful people into holy people, making them citizens of a kingdom that will soon arrive. So now let's turn to the end here. We're almost finished and apply this. How can one become a citizen of God's kingdom? Do you know what the answer is? In other words, how do you receive the transformation, the metamorphosis, go from being just a member of Adam's fallen race under judgment to being a citizen of God's kingdom with your sins forgiven and eternal life? How do you make that move? The answer is in John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is this born again business? It's the same thing we saw in Ezekiel said a different way. I'm going to take out your heart of stone give you a heart of flesh. Right? I'm going to put a new spirit. I'm going to make a new spirit within you, and then my spirit will come and live. To be born, you are born of Adam by being born of your mom and dad. You need to be born from heaven. In other words, you need to receive the gift that Jesus gives you of eternal life. And that reception of Jesus saying, yeah, I receive you is where you say with Peter, you're the Christ. And that means whatever you say goes. And I receive you. And then he forgives your sins, but he doesn't, it's just not a legal transaction. It's, it's more personal than that. He, he give you're born again. You have a new spirit. Have any of you in your life ever had a moment where you went from thinking the Bible didn't mean that much, even though it could be a good book, to this is really telling me the truth, isn't it? That's God working in you to make you born again. Where you went from Jesus is not that important to 
You know what? He's the most important. Well, that's not from you. That's not from a son or daughter of Adam. That is because you've been born again. It's done. You say, what? That could have been done to me already? Yes. And not only does it says God put a new spirit, Ezekiel also said that God said, I will put my spirit in you. And Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit of God lives in those who follow him. We must be changed within. So let me ask you, Christians or not yet Christian, is your mind on the things of men? You might say, well, wait, if I'm a Christian, of course it's not. Wait a minute. Peter was a faithful man. He may have been called Satan then, but he's not Satan, and he's going to be in heaven. He's a good man. He's as faithful as you've ever been, and he's better than us, probably. I mean, he's, God did good things with Peter. And yet, in that moment, where was his brain? On the things of man. Place your mind on the things of God. Let me ask you personally, a little bit of a Give us, let's me give myself and you give yourself a self-test about where your brain is. Do you see him, Jesus, as Messiah of a kingdom of sinful humans? Or as the kingdom of a redeemed people who one day be glorified? One way to know is if you think when you're done with this sermon, I'm going to go listen to Joel Osteen because I really get a lot out of him. Because Joel Osteen has his mind on the things of man. And I'm not picking on Joel Individually, he's a whole category of preachers who want to tell you that the reason you come to Christ is so that your life in this fallen world will improve because you'll get finances. Your finances are going to be blessed. If you put a seed in, your finances will be blessed. If you say in faith, sickness will be gone, you will be healed and you will have victory and the oppressed, you will stand up and your life will be wonderful on the earth. That's having your mind on the spirit of man. In other words, where's your treasure? Do you worship him when it's convenient? Well, it's not easy now. Can't even go in the building. Because you want to be saved from a virus? Lord, save me from a virus. Because you want your retirement? Lord, you got to bless our country because my 401k is dropping like a rock. Because you want your country to be returned to the foundational ideas. Because the Lord sent Trump to bless us all. This is not against or for him, by the way. Nothing to do with him. It's to do with Christians and their brains. Do you think what you want Messiah to do for you is bless you here? Give me a, oh, I need a house. I need the kids to be healthy. I need my money. I need my country to be healthy. Jesus, I need this from you. You're no different than Peter, to whom Jesus said, Is it, do you need to be corrected by Jesus rebuking you, saying, get behind me, Satan. All you ask for is blessings for a fallen world. Do you have food and clothes? By the way, if you have neither of those, let the church know we will see to it you get food and clothes. As long as we have it, we'll give it to you. You'll have food and clothes. But do you have food and clothes? Yes? Yes? Then what else do you really need? Well, I need my health. No, you don't. Because if you die in Christ, you go to heaven. Well, I need my money. You don't. 
I need my house. You don't. You need a place to sleep. Doesn't have to be yours. The most important thing in this world is not that people don't die from a virus. It's that people don't die at all. That's the important thing. People need the Lord. People need Jesus. People need a solution. And that Christians walking around with their mind on the things of earth will not deliver to people what they need. People need Jesus or they will die in their sins and be judged. What about you, Christian? Do you live for the kingdom that is coming or is all your heart right here in the fading, falling nation of man? Now, I know that so many I'm talking to hear this and say, amen, because you want your heart to be all of God's, and I'm thankful for that. Keep doing that, though. I know the desires of this world and the cares of this world and the worries of this world invade my mind all the time. They invade our minds, and we got to push it back and remember, I exist with God forever in the kingdom that he has established. And one day, as a citizen right now, I'm kind of an undercover agent in the enemy's territory, helping to get other citizens into our kingdom. But one day, I won't have to do that job, because he'll show up visibly and set up the kingdom. And that's my true treasure. i got to remind myself, you got to remind yourself. Now, what if you have not been born again? To you, I have one question, and it's not original. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a good teacher? Is he someone invented by the evangelicals to inflict their politics on the world? (laughs) Is he a crazy man? Is he a prophet? Or is he the son of God? Well, if he's God's son, God in the flesh... That change, you see, the what, how you define him determines your response to him. And I'm not asking you to choose, by the way, how you define him. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no. He's not. The, the, all that crap about you can self-identify. I'm a man, but I identify as a woman. I'm a woman, but I identify as a small house cat. You know, no, no. You're just crazy if you identify as something you're not. So that stuff don't work, and it don't work with God. I'm not asking you to choose who you want Jesus to be. I'm asking you right now, in the privacy of your own brain, to ask, who is he? Who is he? And wait for God's answer. And if right away you say, wait a minute, I know he's the son of God, God has shown you that. And if you want to be born again and have your sins forgiven, There's something you can do right now. You can respond to him. How? Like Peter. Wait, we know you're the Christ. And then Peter followed him. He didn't follow him perfectly. His his foibles are written in the Bible. But he did lay down his whole life. And while he was living, he lived for Christ. And when he died, he died for Christ. That's it. Let me lead you in a prayer, if that's you. Would you pray with me, if that's you, right where you are? Just say, Jesus, I get it. You're the son of God. I get it. You died on a cross as a substitute for me. Not just to take away the anger of God towards me, which you did, 
but so that you could give me a new spirit and live with me. Jesus, forgive me my sins. I receive you as you are, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and I will live for you. Now, if you just prayed that, and you meant it, God heard you. It's time to read your Bible. It's time to contact the church when you're ready to uh, talk to a human. But if you already know the Lord, can I just pray for all of us for a moment? Father in heaven, in this time when the world is panicked, the reason they're panicked is because they think like we naturally think when we don't have you. Worrying about their lives, their money, their kingdoms, their power, their nations. But Lord, this is not the thoughts you have. And I pray for each one of us Christians, you give us a new grid through which to view the world. So we can see things as they really are. As you see them, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.